This is the Multiracial Identity Podcast. I'm Robert Cox. Welcome to Episode 1 of the Multiracial Identity Podcast. In the introduction, I talked a little bit about my first guest, Susan Graham, and the multiracial rights organization she started in 1990 called Project Race. And I touched on a little bit about how they've really been fighting for the rights of multiracial people for over 30 years. And we're going to talk about that fight a lot more, too, because I kind of joined in. It's a real important issue for the multiracial community. But really, up until a couple years, it's something I didn't even know about. And I know I'm not the only person a multiracial person or interracial couple, you know, that would that could say that. So we want to change that. So I'm really proud to be able to talk to Susan for this first episode of the Multiracial Identity Podcast because she, you know, the, the multi, the modern multiracial rights movement began with her and her efforts for her son and her daughter. So that's Project Race, and that's R A C E, and that's. It stands for Reclassify All Children Equally, and they can be found at ProjectRace.com and on social media. And basically, working with their allies leading up to the the 2000 census, Susan Graham and Project Race were responsible for multiracial people finally being able to pick more than one race on that census in the year 2000. And considering the fact that the last time the U.S. government actually counted or recorded multiracial people on a census was in 1930, 2000 was actually a big deal for the multiracial community and it, 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 it broke 70 years of being officially erased and was finally over. And in, in really in a way it's that whole thing that happened is kind of something that's being taken for granted now in a way, be, being able to pick two races or more and finally seeing that in different places. And it's even kind of been used as a reason not to make multiracial with a capital M, which I talked about that in the introduction and what that means, you know, the multiracial identity, it's been used to keep as a reason to, to, to not make that official with the U.S. government. And it's not a reason at all. And Project Race, and while that was a victory, the two races or more, Project Race hasn't taken that victory for granted. They've continued to battle with the government agencies that are directly involved in all of this to get the multiracial identity with a capital M recognized in America. And so much of what we'll be discussing in the first podcast and more can be found in Susan Graham's book. It's called Born by Racial and it's available on many online outlets and bookstores. And in the book she recounts from the very beginning how she came to be America's leading advocate for multiracial rights. And it's not just the rights of multiracial people per se. It's also that key thing, and that's to have the multiracial identity recognized by the United States government. And and so, you know, she's had real successes and victories and setbacks, but she continues to battle with these the government agencies, and we'll talk about those and, and, and tell everybody what they've been up to, academics that really have had clearly questionable motives about what the stuff they pop off with, the media, of course, and then also people in the multiracial community who 
they don't believe that or don't think it's important that multiracial people should have an officially recognized racial identity for whatever reason. So these are the things that Susan Graham and, and the allies of Project Race have been dealing with for a lot of years, a lot of years, a lot longer years than a lot more years than I realized they were. And so that's just not right. So I would I'm, I'm really happy to be able to to welcome Susan Graham of Project Race to the Multiracial Identity Podcast. Susan, thank you for joining me. I'm really happy to be talking with you today. Thank you. I'm looking forward to this. Why don't we go ahead and get into it? Uh, in your book, Born Biracial, you recount a moment that is kind of the inspiration for you getting involved in all this, for you eventually launching Project Race. And, and it's actually a moment that a lot of multiracial people and interracial couples can really identify with. And that's when the, the first day that the multiracial child goes to school. And that's because that's often the first time you're presented with uh, forms that collect data on race. And so it inspired you to launch a 30-year movement for the civil rights, for multiracial civil rights, and I just thought that would be a good place to start. I'd love to hear about it. Sure. Um, actually, it started for me in 1990 when my son uh, went off to kindergarten, and we went in to fill out all the paperwork, and it came to a question on race. And all I had could pick from was black, white, Asian, Hispanic, or Native Indian, Alaskan. And I could only pick one. And because my son is multiracial and it wasn't a uh, place for him to check, I left it blank. And about a week later, uh, a form came home and it said, uh, you left this blank and we have to have it filled out. And I called the school and I said, um, look, my son is multiracial. He's not any one of these categories and you only allow me to check one. I can't. He's multiracial. And they said, oh, don't worry about it, Mrs. Graham. You don't even have to fill it out. It's fine. And I said, well, I thought that was progress. So I sent it back and now filled out again. And I came to find out later that my son's teacher was told to pick a race for my child based on her, quote, knowledge and observation, unquote, of my child on his first day of school. And his father took him to school that day, and his teacher decided that he was black. Strictly observer. Nobody, you know, asked him. We didn't fill out any paperwork, so it was observer identification. And uh, I didn't find that out until I started looking into this. And I received my 2000, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, my... Uh, 1990, I believe. Um, from 1990, I knew that there wasn't any place for my child on the U.S. Census. Again, it asked for five races, and I couldn't check more than one. So I called the Census Bureau because it had kind of piqued my interest. And I called the Census Bureau and... and I was put on hold uh, a bunch of times, and the gentleman said, um, I have to find out, we're, we're asked this more and more, and I'm not sure what we do with multiracial children, and let me find out. And he kept coming back and saying, I'm getting closer, and finally he came back and said, okay, I talk with the supervisor, and the children take the race of the mother. And I said, really? 
why arbitrarily the mother? Why not the, the father? So uh, when I asked, you know, arbitrarily why the race of the mother, he said, because in cases like this, we don't we know who the mother is and not the father. And I was totally incensed. And that that evening, I started to think about it, and I thought, you know, here we have the same child who's white on the census, black at school, and multiracial at home, and there's something really wrong with this picture. And I basically set out to handle the, or better the data in our country because the data was wrong. It can't be that, you know, the same child is black, white, and multiracial at the same time and have accurate data. And I knew that the, the statisticians had to do something about this, so we set out to take care of this. Well, that's the thing, Susan. I mean, most people wouldn't even have thought to call. And if you hadn't called, you would never have known any of this was going on. And basically, like millions of interracial and multiracial couples and multiracial people and don't realize that right now you know and so and that that whole circumstance that shows and proves the stories that you hear of multiracial people particularly from the older generations but not exclusively where you know you're being born as one race in classification you're maybe living as another race and then dying as a third race even at, in, under the statistical classifications, it's it's crazy in a lot of ways, and it, and it's definitely not right. And I found out that a lot of parents were curious, but not curious enough to make phone calls and you know put people on notice that we wanted to do something about this. So, well, like you mentioned, they were the census was scrambling when you called them, even though they mentioned that they had been getting calls with inquiries just like yours and it had been increasing and showing that the multiracial population was blowing up and 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 getting larger even at that time but still their answer was something like the race of the mother you know it's talk about regressive and then you had the the racist connotations like you say like there's no fathers in the inner city but even beyond that it just is like something's throwback to the 18th century or something or the biblical age it's it's certainly not progressive that's for sure. And so and it's just crazy that they would think that this is okay to choose your child's race on under with these kind of parameters. It's nuts, you know. So but so you heard back from the census and you heard all this backward stuff about how they're picking your child's race and so what'd you do next? Well, um we decided that we had to pick a name. We had to decide whether it was going to be Mulatto, which mixed race people were once called, or mixed race, or multiracial, or biracial. We had to decide on the name. So we polled the Project Race membership because we had started Project Race by that time. And the race stands for reclassify all children equally. So that's where Project Race comes from. And we decided as a membership organization it was overwhelmingly people wanted multiracial. They wanted that to be the the name that was used, the terminology that's used. Um, wanted it to be multiracial. So that's what we decided on. And we knew that we had to uh, really kind of look to our own backyards 
and start on a lower level and do what I call bubble up. I went to Washington. So we started to contact our own schools. And I remember calling the superintendent of schools for Fulton County, Georgia. And I told him what the problem was. And he said, that sounds like the right thing to do. We'll do it. Fulton County, Georgia was the first school district in the country to put multiracial on the school forms. And just last week, because school was starting, I called and found out that they still have multiracial on the forms. They haven't changed. Uh, OMB has still not accepted it, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Well, yeah, I was just going to mention that uh, that's actually the same Fulton County that's in the news now for the DA indicting a former president and his 19 co-conspirators there. And apparently a lot of the vote manipulation and things that went on went on there in Fulton County. And it's just they were, you know, took the reins and and took the responsibility to try to hold them accountable for their alleged crimes. But it's interesting that that would be where multiracial kind of first took hold and that's an interesting story, for sure. What's also interesting about it is that uh, at this point in time for the 2023-24 school year, they have 4% of their students are multiracial or cho- chose to put multiracial on the forms that they filled out, which tells us also that uh, the NAACP and Urban League and a lot of the organizations that were against us because they thought that we would take away their numbers and we said that it wouldn't happen, and it didn't happen. I mean, 4% is not a very big total for a county like Fulton County. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, you had been right all along when you were always insisting that a multiracial classification or option would not take people away from the other officially recognized racial identities, the categories. And, I mean, that's something that uh, I know the African-American groups and advocates were trying to say when they were coming out against the multiracial classification and it's just it's, it smacks of racism to me it's it, there's no reason to deny my right to exist you know anyway even if that did happen which it didn't so it, but it's it just it reminds me of white people saying that about african american people the, the african the very existence of african american people diminishes their the white people's existence somehow that that's racism and it's something that went on and you dealt with early on when trying to establish Project Race. And we're going to talk about that in the next, in following episodes, because that's really important. But what it turns out is that many multiracial people were always picking other or some other race. And so it didn't actually impact the numbers in any way. And and they clearly weren't checking African-American or Asian or white if they had another option and now we did as of 2000 and thanks to you guys' hard work did have another option thankfully and that's two races or more we're not there yet but that was something that was a huge victory so so the next step for you after fulton county was to go to the state level in georgia correct the next the next step was to try to get legislation passed in the state of georgia to put multiracial on all the forms And we had a senator in mind who was Senator Sally Newbill, who was uh, part white and part Native American. And she was very 
pro-education, and whenever there was a bill, it seemed that that landed on Sally Newbill's desk when it pertained to education. So we were advised to go to her, and I went to her and explained the situation, and she said, I'm completely with you, but I'm not the one to introduce this legislation. She said, you need to go to Senator Senator Ralph David Abernathy, the son of the great civil rights leader. Uh, Ralph Abernathy III. The third, right. And um, because he was black and he had multiracial children in the family. And so I did what I would normally do. I called up Ralph David Abernathy III. Called him up. Yeah, and uh-huh. he came to the phone. And I explained the situation. And he said... Um, you're right, and we have multiracial children in our family, and this pertains to us and our whole community, and I'll introduce the bill for you. I'll carry the bill, which is what he did. And uh, Georgia has a very short legislative season, and it's 40 days out of every year. So we knew that we only had 40 days that year, it took it took us three years to pass the legislation because of the short session. So we hung out with Ralph David Abernathy III for three years until we got it passed. And at about the same time, I found out about a woman in uh, Ohio named Chris Ash, and she had uh, started legislation in Ohio. And the person who was carrying her legislation was... Um, Majority House Leader Bill Mallory, and you can't—excuse me—you can't get any better than to have the House Leader or Senate Leader introduce your legislation. So, um, yeah, I mean, we just went right to the top, and he was—he was wonderful. He was great. We we talked a lot. And uh, he got our legislation passed. So by that time, we had also passed legislation in Georgia. So we had a couple of uh, assets to take to Washington. And Bill Mallory and Bill Mallory was good friends with um, a congressman named, uh, or he was a representative named Tom Sawyer. His name really was Tom Sawyer. Bill Mallory talked to Tom Sawyer about bringing this to the attention of Washington, and Tom Sawyer said, it's the right thing to do, we'll do it. And he headed up a, a subcommittee that had the Census Bureau under them. They uh, made laws and changes for the Census Bureau. So because of that, and knowing Bill Mallory, uh, Tom Sawyer agreed with Bill Mallory that I would come to Washington to testify, and I would bring my little son, who was then eight years old. So we went off to Washington. Yeah, I didn't really know what I was doing, but we found out from the chairman that my son Ryan was the youngest person to ever testify before Congress. And he was eight years old at the time. Wow. Right, and he's going to be 39 next week. So you can tell how how far ago this was. Well, and how long you've been fighting for us, too, without 
a lot of us even know, and I, me especially, I didn't know about Project Race until just a couple years ago. So uh, that was a committee, a subcommittee on race and ethnicity? Well, this was a subcommittee on the census, so the, it was all focused on race and the census. And there were other issues about race, too. Um, the North African uh, Middle Eastern group wanted a... Uh, well, they had been kind of unbelievably put in the white category, classified as white in sentences. And to this day, it's makes about as much sense as multiracial people not even being on the census. There's no Middle Eastern or Arab classification. It's bizarre. It really is. Right, right. They historically have been, but they've wanted their own category. So. But that's taken them um, over 40 years. So things don't move quickly in Washington. Well, I, it's just another example of how many, something so plainly obvious and necessary just doesn't get done in the government, in the United States government, it, and it won't get done. It's common sense things that they just refuse to enact, and considering your experience, you can certainly testify to that craziness. So it was during this time that you found out about the OMB, uh, it's the Office of Management and Budget in the White House, or, and Directive 15, or how did you get to that point after writing on, arriving on the national political scene? I, I imagine it became very clear very fast that the OMB were the ones directly involved in all this. It became very clear very fast, and we got a lot of uh, attention from the media. You know, here they they had one story, which was an eight-year-old boy testifying. They had the story of the multiracial classification in general. And they had some other issues that they were dealing with, too, like the MENA category. So we set out to, to kind of find out, you know, what, what happens next. And at the hearings, we also had some um, representatives from different organizations. There was an organization called AMIA which stood for Association of Multi-Ethnic Americans. And uh, we we asked them to come and testify with us. And um, Edwin Darden of the Interracial Family Alliance in Washington, uh, we asked him to come and testify with us too. So the progression is to hold hearings. And they held uh, four hearings. And I testified twice, and my son uh, three times, and my son testified twice. They kept asking us to come back. And when they, after they have the hearings, they decide what they're going to do. And what's normal is to form a committee. And Washington is full of committees. <laughs> Another committee, they formed a committee called the NAC or NAC, um, which stands for National uh uh, I believe that would have been the National Advisory Committee on Race and Ethnicity. Right, right. And then they would go back to um, OMB, which is the Office of Management and Budget. And the OMB would put out federal register notices asking for comments. It's, a, it's a kind of a whole thing that they go through, starting with the hearings and ending with the comments and the recommendations of the NAC go back to OMB. 
And they actually talk like this. I mean, <laughs> so this is when you really found out about Directive 15. That's important. So let's talk about that. Uh, Directive 15 was enacted in 1977, and it was updated in 1997. But many people don't know what it is, even or especially what its impact has been on this country on a lot of different levels. Directive 15 has a great impact on every single one of us. Directive 15 states what races and ethnicities we can be, um, how we have to put them down and mark them. And for us, we wanted two things. We wanted a multiracial category, and we wanted to be known as multiracial. One of the things that they call us now in Washington, our MOOMS, which stands for Mark One or More People. It's offensive to me to have my children called a MOOM. Yeah, or, or combination people, which I mentioned earlier. It's weird, needless to say. Uh, well, the whole idea that these bureaucrats are sitting around in meetings referring to this bothersome population while we were blowing up at the time, you know, and with the little acronyms like MOOMS or was it TOMER was another one that was two or more races people, you know, they went to all this trouble coming up with these cutesy little acronyms when they could have just as easily used multiracial. And, you know, I don't know if that's thoughtlessness at, at the least it's or it's racism. I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's incompetence. And, it, and these are the people or at least some of the people who are involved or who work in these agencies who are basically the gatekeepers for what is an officially recognized race in America and what isn't. So, so I, to make sure that we make it clear to whether that was, so the post-1997 list cited in the Directive 15 is, uh, of races is black or African American, white, Asian, Native Hawaiian or other Pacific Islander, and American Indian or Alaska Native. And then there they added in 1997 a category for Hispanic or non-Hispanic. And so, obviously, multiracial is nowhere on that list, <laughs> needless to say. Yeah. There's a whole group that wants uh, Hispanic to be a race and not an ethnicity. So we'll see how all this plays out. They're supposed to make their next decision on this in summer of uh, 2035. And there's that decision they're supposed to announce this next summer, 2024, as well. Was it directly relating to this whole situation? OMB kind of skirts around this by saying, well, these are the minimum categories. And it's true, um, which is why, like, Fulton County can still have multiracial on their form because you have to have five of the minimum forms. So basically five minimum classifications. And then you can have whatever else you want. If you live in a uh, community that has a lot of Portuguese, you might want to put Portuguese on the uh, race and ethnicity question. So, but it was too much for a group like, uh, you know, we were a national group and we were growing uh, incredibly large, but we still knew that it would take so much time for every county and every state to have to make the change that the real change had to come from Directive 15, from OMB. And, you know, we talk about the uh, federal and state government forms involved, but 
There's a census every 10 years. There's voting and redistricting issues, medical, educational, uh, military, law enforcement forms, insurance forms, uh, data on various populations. So it's interesting, but what happens with employment forms is that you're usually given a form that has, you know, the five categories and sometimes other. And if you say that you refuse to fill it out because you're multiracial and they don't have multiracial on the form, then they usually take it back and say, that's no problem, you don't have to fill it out. Meanwhile, someone else is filling it out for you based on their knowledge and observation of you. I filled out a medical form the other day, and um, it didn't have multiracial. And I told them that um, I wanted multiracial added, and we had a talk, you know, chat about it, and they added multiracial. You know, sometimes wow. it's just being aware of it and asking for it, and people don't. They're afraid to ask for it for some reason. I, I don't get that, but... Um, wow. So you're saying... Now your employer could be involved in observer designation, while your children, well your children, your children's school are involved in designation as well, and observer designation as well. That's that's uh, disturbing. We call it eyeballing. eyeballing. When someone looks at you and decides what you are, they're eyeballing you. Man, wow. It, it's just so regressive, you know, and it's just so backwards. It, is this 1950s or, I mean, is this the 1800s slave era? You know, it's it's one of those things where you have to say, how is this still going on? But, of course, it is still going on in all these different levels, whether it's in your employment or whether it's in schooling or, you know, it's shocking and infuriating in so many ways, but... And and what's all shocking and infuriating is that so many multiracial people and interracial couples aren't aware of this as well. But and you wouldn't have been aware of it if you hadn't started asking questions all those years ago in Fulton County and then started telling people. Well, uh, we're on Directive 15 and we're really starting to get into what it means, you know, for this multiracial, you know, with a capital M, not being on what is actually a pretty short list of uh, nationally recognized racial groups or identities. So you mentioned earlier about the health implications and some of the forms involved there. So it's really an important aspect to all of this. And we figured that we would dedicate an entire episode to the health and medical implications of the multiracial identity not being recognized by the United States government. And a large portion of the, by extension, large portion of the medical establishment as well, although not all, if you speak up, you can change that, as you pointed out. So, Medical implications are great. Well, absolutely, absolutely, they are. Very, and and that's one of the reasons why Project Race has been involved in in bone marrow transplant donor drives and stem cell transplant donor drives for decades now, and it's because these situations right here and others can directly impact our health and the health of multiracial children, and a, a lot of us just don't know this. We're not aware of this, and our doctors don't tell us this, and we may live with the complications, but 
it's it's an important episode and it's in a, so for the next episode of the multiracial identity podcast susan graham will be joining me again and we're going to talk more about all of these health and medical implications of the issues um of multiracial not being on the directive 15 list if you want to get more into directive 15 and what it looks like and what it's about uh it's all in my book born by racial um it just goes into more than i can go into on a podcast so uh absolutely uh susan graham's book born by racial it's an amazing history of the beginnings of the multiracial rights movement in America, and it's also a window into how government bureaucracy works, or rather, it, it really doesn't work. And it's maddening, and it's head splitting, and it's insane. And and it's it's a good read. It's a great read. So, um, absolutely, do pick that up for more about all of this. So, um, time for people to get involved. Time for people to get involved. Absolutely, and work together. And work together. We will be talking about the importance of a tight-knit multiracial community in, in the next episode. It's key in so many different levels. It's in save lives, and it will help us all. It helps us mentally. It helps to know that we're not other, and that's not even starting with the kids that are on the way. The, you know, the tens of millions of children, multiracial kids, are going to be born over the next 10, 20 years, and they'll need a support and understanding, and they know to know that they're not, quote-unquote, other. There's a lot more to this story, and I hope that people will tune in again, and we'll have several episodes. Uh, to talk about so um, I'm really looking forward to that Susan and even after we do discuss the beginnings of the multiracial rights movement there's there's going to be there's a lot going on now and there will be in the future when is the key decision coming from the office of management and budget next summer in 2024 and we'll be talking about that too so well excellent thank you all for joining us on the first episode of the Multiracial Identity Podcast and uh, look forward to talking with you again in episode two.